Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you've just been down to your local healthcare professional and they said to you, look, you've got osteoarthritis, your joints decaying. There's not much you can do because you're getting old. You may as well just rest because this is a one-way street towards continual decline. And in time, you're probably going to need to have surgery to fix that problem. You walked away, understandably, discouraged and dismayed because you thought now your joint is failing. There's not much you can do about it. You're going to continue to become increasingly sedentary. And all of those enjoyable activities that you used to uh, take immense value from you're not going to be able to do for a long period of time until you get that surgical fix those beliefs are incredibly common out there in the community and come from lots and lots of different perspectives whether that be through healthcare professionals through friends that you might have that have osteoarthritis that have similar attitudes towards their disease but by reframing that content about the beliefs and your knowledge and understanding of osteoarthritis, we can definitely change the way you have a perception about the illness and about what you can do proactively about managing this disease and regain control over this condition. Today, that's the topic we're talking about. It's pithy, it's content rich, but it really digs into a lot of those misconceptions and inappropriate beliefs that lead to, unfortunately, uh, continued decline and sedentary behavior. So we're going to talk about those beliefs, talk about reframing those beliefs and the benefits of so doing. And we're doing that with Ben Dahler, who we have the privilege of chatting to today. Ben's an associate professor at the University of Otago and a musculoskeletal physiotherapy specialist based in Wellington, New Zealand. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, David. It's lovely to be here. Uh, it's absolutely our pleasure and really looking forward to having this conversation. I think it'll be incredibly valuable for for our audience. But before we get into that, just in an effort to get to know a fellow New Zealander a little bit better, can you share with the listeners 
a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? Yeah, sure. So I'm from Wellington in New Zealand, um, but I grew up in um, Ohakuni in the centre of the North Island of New Zealand by the by the mountain uh, Ropehu as well. Um, and so that that's also part of, I guess, my identity and who I am and where I feel like I come from. I'm a physiotherapist by, by trade and I practiced solely clinically for, I guess, about the first 15 years of my career. But when doing that, there were there were questions that came up within my practice that I couldn't necessarily find answers for in, in the literature. And so at that point, I embarked on doing more research. And particularly at that stage, it was around low back pain and beliefs around low back pain. And that then segued into osteoarthritis, um, where there are also some similarities uh, in terms of the impact of beliefs on people. And so that then grew into an academic career, I guess. So now I spend four days of my week working for a university doing research and teaching, primarily of medical students. And then I still have a day a week that I spend in the clinic where I work as a physiotherapy specialist uh, in, in private practice. So most of my days are doing academic work, but then I have a real step change on the clinic day where I am just interacting with the person who who I'm consulting with at that given point in time and it's it's really nice to have that balance I guess across my life and you know just drawing upon that obviously you spent quite a number of years just working in clinical practice and you've obviously made the conscious decision that you want to continue in clinical practice rather than for me to preface the question with an answer why why is that Look, I think I get quite different rewards from those different areas. And so research is a very long-term game. And often you don't get a real sense of the work you're doing, creating value and meaning for people. Teaching is more of a middle game, I guess, in many ways, and that you can certainly see your students' growth in their knowledge and their interest and engagement, but there's still a, a midterm strategy that hopefully it's supporting and empowering them to do good work in the future. But then there's the direct interaction with the patients where you're getting very direct feedback as to you know whether or not you're you're having a positive influence on someone's life. And so I think balancing that out is quite nice but also all three of those pillars support each other so there are questions that arise for me in the clinic that then I can think of ways of trying to answer with the research and then the other way there are things I learn through the research that I can test through the clinic and so it, it comes into a you know a nice ecosystem um, but it can be challenging to try and juggle your time at times yeah, no, I completely understand. And obviously, that's a perspective that I share with you, both in terms of making sure that I continue in clinical practice, but also the the struggle to maintain balance and perspective where you know that a lot of, for example, your academic colleagues that you work with and collaborate with, but ultimately also potentially compete with for grants are full-time and don't get necessarily distracted by clinical practice nor teaching I definitely share that passion with you and I think continue stress to all of my colleagues the importance of maintaining clinical practice uh, for the relevancy it creates for the research that you do and the, that bi-directional feedback that you just spoke about. Now, I'm going off on a tangent here, which I do tend to do, but Ben, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? 
I love to be outside in the outdoors in mountains in bush and wildlife areas. I, I like to run. I like to cycle. I like to tramp. I love to ski when I can, particularly on Mount Ruapehu. So yes, I guess I'm an active relaxer overall, but you know, I do enjoy reading and socializing and, and good food as well. Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody who hasn't had the privilege of going to New Zealand, uh, Ben lives essentially in the paradise for people who want to get out and hike and bike and those sorts of things. It's uh, it's a beautiful part of the world to do that. And I would thoroughly recommend it for people who have a passion about doing those sorts of things. Ben, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I think the first one would be active because I'm active in most of what I do and actively engaged in it. Uh, I am curious and that stimulates a lot of my, my work and I am collaborative. I like to work with a range of people and be able to integrate and learn from those perspectives. I'm critical both in terms of self-critical and hypocritical, as well as um, critical of ideas. And I'm relatively reflective, which I guess is, is a blessing, but when it verges on rumination could be a, <laughs> a curse. Yeah, I mean, see, you took the positive and negative out of every one of those words as, as, you, were, as you were describing them. But I think um, at least what I've seen from you, I would imagine most of most of it tends to err on the side of the positive elements of those descriptors and the conversation that we're about to have really stemmed from in some interactions we had recently when I had the privilege to go and visit you and your colleagues at the University of Otago in Dunedin uh, for a workshop that you all organized that you presented at about a topic that I think is really really important for for our listeners about both um, misconceptions but also beliefs about osteoarthritis but also I, I guess ideally what people with osteoarthritis should know. So uh, let's start with the belief span, if that's okay. But based upon the work that you and others have done, uh, what do people with osteoarthritis believe? From And our my thoughts, I guess, are primarily informed by qualitative interviews. So face-to-face -face interviews that we've done with people who live with osteoarthritis, particularly with osteoarthritis of the knee. And the overriding belief that came through was a belief that osteoarthritis is purely a condition of structural deterioration of a joint surface. So people's understanding of the condition was very defined by images of cartilage loss and degradation and joint damage. But also that that was a sign of getting old. And so something that indicated to them an age and stage that they were at or that their joints were at that may well be different from their own biological age. And because of those two, the combination of those two ideas, there was then this sense, this expectation of progressive degradation of that and that it was a one-way trip that would only get worse from henceforward and that people had this sort of window of time that they wanted to try and make the most of their joint 
whilst it was still functioning in some degree, but they had a real concern that every time they used the joint, they were compounding and aggravating those factors and therefore shrinking that window of time um, with the expectation that eventually they would need their joint to be replaced. And so people were, were quite high certainty about that and didn't really feel a need for further information to supplement those ideas because they had such a strong belief that this was the way it was. But then they had some real uncertainty around things like, well, why do my pain and other symptoms vary from day to day or week to week when my understanding of the joint is that it's, you know, that what I feel directly relates to how that looks? And, you know, what should I do, what I can't I do? That wasn't necessarily they hadn't had good answers on how to to best manage their, their themselves going forwards yeah it's a, it sounds like an incredibly uh, negative perception or a misconception if you like of that story of decay or degradation aging and getting old and obviously that one way street towards decline as opposed to uh, what truly is happening. And so that's what they believe. And I would imagine based upon uh, much of the literature that abounds around this, both from you and others, you might frame much of that belief as myths or misconceptions or inaccuracies about that understanding. But they've obviously developed those beliefs as a consequence of something why why do you think people with osteoarthritis believe those concepts that you just spoke about? I think a lot of it traces back to us as health professionals in terms of the models and explanations that we have used historically that may still be being used in some contexts around arthritis being a condition of wear and tear. Uh, that may have been terms, I think, that clinicians developed from a good intent of wanting to not make it seem as scary as osteoarthritis might be as a term, but at the same point, it communicates to people every time they use their joint, they wear it out. And then going towards the bone-on-bone type descriptions that people get, that then really reinforces that eventually you wear away your joint to being nothing. And so I think those sorts of messages and the focus of health systems very much on providing treatments just for the joint, that that is a strong influence on focusing people down to just looking at those things. But there's also the community uh, understandings of you know, the imagery that's put on TV when people are selling medications for joint pain or even our Arthritis New Zealand ads used to have images of red shards of glass being ground into joints. So that imagery um, and looking at people's own images with their x-rays and scans reinforces that. But then their lived experience, because based upon those existing beliefs, if then with joint pain you have noises associated with it, you can see how people conflate that into assuming that those noises are to do 
with causing further damage to their joint. Their experience is when they do more activity, load and use their joint more, their pain gets worse, maybe their swelling gets worse. Well, then their lived experience reinforces that idea that using this joint is bad for it. And so it's the confluence of all of those different beliefs coming together and supporting each other that I think makes people so certain that that is what what the truth is. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a challenging context, which, as you say, is probably being maintained both by health professionals and community perceptions, and will be hard to change. But obviously, we'll get we'll get back into that a, a little bit later in the conversation. But before we do that, just in an effort to, I guess, expand a little bit upon um, the the patient experience, the patient beliefs, but probably more importantly, in the first instance, their knowledge. What do people who have osteoarthritis know about their condition? I mean, yeah, beliefs and knowledge are relatively uh, interrelated, I would say. And knowledge is a belief that people feel like there is more evidence that corroborates. And so those beliefs that I talked about, I think most people would view those as knowledge. It's what they know about their knee. Uh but I think people also know that when they're active, they are healthier people. They know that it lifts their mood. They know it's good for their more general health if they're more active and engaged. They know that they enjoy spending time with their their friends and whānau. They, they know that being at work is good for their health. So there's lots of other intersecting areas of knowledge that they hold but I think the real challenge that people are left with is the trying to balance the knowledge they have about their joint and what they can and can't do or should and should not do and knowing what else is valuable in their lives and what they'd love to engage in and having to feel like they're making trade-offs between those two things I think is what really puts people in a hard position because they are always feeling like they're sacrificing something that is important to them and I think for me that's where I see the real opportunity with actually a lot of the trade-offs people are making are based upon information that I think we've got different ways of looking at and evidence that's emerged over time that might actually help them to use that information to make choices that are, are consistent with, with their own goals and values. So let's let's step on from that. And so when when you say that they have these misplaced beliefs and their activity and their attitude towards disease stems from that. In your clinical practice or when you're teaching students or when you're framing this for the community of people who's trying to better understand osteoarthritis and what we should do, how do you frame this condition and how do you frame what people should know or believe for osteoarthritis? Yeah, I think the, the key starting point is that osteoarthritis is a process not an end point it's a process of joint change and our bodies change across our lives and there are changes that occur within the joint that might cause that joint to hurt or to swell or do other things but because it's a process and it's something that's been going on for much longer than the joint has been symptomatic in any way it means it's something that can be influenced by the person because processes are constantly in flux, dependent upon the way that the, pro, the the system is influenced. And I think looking at it as something that actually is 
has the capacity to for the person to have power and autonomy over changing is really important. But also the expanding the understanding of what that process influences away from just those joint surfaces to broadening out to the other parts of the joint, the joint linings, the capsule and the the membranes that create the fluid that that helps to feed and nourish that joint, but also the muscles that empower that joint to move and support it and the nerves that are communicating information from that joint to the brain and back. And all of those tissues are affected by this condition. And that means there are all opportunities to have a positive influence on the condition. And particularly most people have experience of or understanding of training muscles to perform better. And so then all of a sudden, the opportunities that are available expand, which then changes it from being something whereby the person thinks it could only get worse. And actually, our data on that is that for the majority of people, in fact, symptoms stay stable over long periods of time. And for some people, they get better. And if that becomes the expectation, rather than this much smaller group for whom things do get progressively worse... Well, then that starts to open up hope. Uh, and I think hope then inspires all sorts of, of, of things. So I think those are the key messages that I tend to look at is that one, it's a process of change. Two, it's a process that you can influence. Three, the outcome can be improved. And you know, even without anything, it may stay stable over long times. And that using the joint does not wear it out, but actually feeds the joint and helps to keep it healthy, as well as allowing the persons to still stay engaged in the things that they value in life. Yeah, I mean, that message and the uh, the, the way you frame that is incredibly empowering. And obviously, presumably as a consequence of that, as you say, the reframing can help a person to be proactive in, in managing their disease and presumably benefit from the activity that otherwise they might have suppressed. The The way you framed it is obviously challenging for many healthcare professionals and potentially for patients who are out there who have osteoarthritis. They're not necessarily hearing that from their healthcare professionals. You've written about this. Obviously, we're talking about it today. Are there helpful sources of information that you'd encourage people to tap into if they want to learn more about the type of messaging that you're providing, whether that whether you want to frame that as an empowerment discourse or whatever you want to frame it, uh, are there other types of information, sources of information that you think might be helpful in building better knowledge and helpful beliefs? Uh, certainly from the way that I view this condition uh, and what's emerged from our research, we've got a website called freefromkneepain.org. And so those messages are expanded on there. Uh, obviously, with joint action, there's good information for people that they can access through that as well. In New Zealand, we've got a health information resource that covers a whole range of different conditions called Healthify, um, previously known as Health Navigator, where, again, there is information for people there about osteoarthritis that's very consistent um, with the messages we've talked about today. So I think those are you know, reasonable resources. And certainly if there were clinicians that happen to come across this as well, um, we have done work on training clinicians to try and support them to deliver those messages. 
and that training will be available to to everyone through that website by the first quarter of next year wonderful that's fantastic ben and you know obviously strongly encourage you to continue the important work that you're doing in that space I would imagine for the average person that has osteoarthritis, um, building those knowledge, building the, the the helpful beliefs takes time and is a process. In general, how do you approach supporting a person through that as, as they're acquiring knowledge and presumably confidence in what their joints can do? Are there things that you do to help a person through that journey, so to speak? Yeah, I think experiential learning is really vital to it so we need to have an initial discussion around how someone is looking at their condition to understand where the differences are to how I might look at it and explore why aspects of that I look at differently and the information sources I've used to inform that so that we've got curiosity about maybe this might be something different and then we can set up some changes in behavior or activity that would support a certain way of looking at this and then support the person to develop a plan for how they might test those behaviors. And then we can look at, well, what did we learn from that and adjust and modify based upon that. And so that the person can progressively develop behaviors that work well within their own context and their own lives, but that are likely to move them towards their goals. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important that it be an iterative process um, and that you continue to seek feedback from the health professional that you're engaging with and not to take the intermittent day that might not be as favorable as a really bad sign that things have deteriorated beyond help, um, but that that potentially might be one of the natural fluctuations or flares that we see in the course of the disease and you know, if you do some activity and it produces some discomfort around the knee, potentially that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it might just be a sign that you're using muscles that potentially haven't been used that way for a while. So, you know, go back, seek help, seek support from the people who are coaching you through this process and make sure that you get that feedback in a way that hopefully will help you to foster um, a very positive, positive journey. So Ben, what we'll do is we'll include some of those links that you mentioned a moment ago, but another resource that people may find helpful in this regard is a conversation I had with uh, Samantha Bunsley about that impairment versus empowerment type discourse uh, that we mentioned a moment ago that people might want to tap into. But is there anything else that you want to mention about the topic before we move on? No, I think we have covered that relatively well. I guess my encouragement to people is that, you know, when thinking about what you just said about, you know, continuing to seek feedback from clinicians, I also, I would hope that people's clinicians are continually seeking feedback from them to enable them to individualize what they're providing. Because people are not all the same and what works for one person would work quite differently for another. But also to mention to your clinician, if they are saying things that are inconsistent with some of those resources that we've directed people to, because that then gives the clinician an opportunity to explore whether or not the models that they are using are being interpreted in the way that they intended, or whether there are different ways that they could go about explaining things. 
so that we can all support the community to to look at things differently and same with interactions with your family and relatives and friends because often we all focus you know as humans we're very biased towards minimizing threat and looking for negative stuff and helping them to look at things in different ways then means that that very negative vicious sort of cycle we talked about earlier everyone reinforcing negative beliefs yeah you know, we can all play a role in influencing to move towards more positive ones yeah, I think that's really helpful. And particularly with, you know, some of the resources that you mentioned a moment ago about um, helping health professionals to use uh, a dialogue or discourse that's actually helpful in promoting some of those beliefs um, can come from patients providing those suggestions to the health healthcare professionals that may be at this point in time, uh, reinforcing uh, those more negative beliefs or behaviors. Um, so Ben, in large part, because I'm inquisitive to to learn about many of the people that I have the privilege to speak with. But if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you choose to do? Essentially, you had the magic wand, funding was limitless. Uh, it's your choice. What would you do? Um, I would support and enable everyone to enjoy physical activity across their lifespan. I see that as being such a vital part of whom we are as humans and keeping us healthy and enabling people to manage so many different aspects of their of their health. And we're not just talking about physical health, we're talking about mental health and social health, community health. So I think that would be the the thing that I would, yeah, most like our health system to put a lot more emphasis on than it currently does. Yeah, I would uh, similarly love love to see that happen. Any thoughts or suggestions as to how you move a health system away from reacting to illness and chronic disease to one where it's proactively supporting people to promote health? I think I've also got an interest in interprofessional practice. So bringing different disciplinary skill sets and expertise together and I think one of the challenges with government is that our health department is completely separate from our education department and completely separate from our social support agency and the mechanisms by which the health system would be able to deliver that they can't do it within hospitals and within clinics it has to be done out in communities has to be done earlier in life and so you know i think it would be to try and support more interaction and interdisciplinary support and sharing between those agencies so that they can all lift up the community together rather than just being able having to being mandated to focus only on their own budgets and what they do because i think that siloing of things although it may make the accounting easier it makes the product much worse. Yeah, no, I think if we can change behaviors from a much earlier age, uh, whether that be through education or community initiatives that that improve determinants of health, I think will uh, will ultimately make it make a huge difference. Um, and also involve more of the community in designing those solutions and what works for them. Yeah. Because I think often, again, there's the risk that government develops something that they assume should work 
and then it doesn't work well and so therefore they assume that actually we can't we can't change this behavior rather than having more confidence in the community to develop solutions that will be more likely sustainable over time yeah no it's a a key ingredient isn't it ben what motivates you to do what you do i have difficulty sitting with suboptimal processes and outcomes and missed opportunities and i see there is just so much opportunity to improve people's health and their lives and their enjoyment thereof uh, that i see it as a real privilege to have the opportunity myself to influence that in a range of ways through those different areas of practice that we talked about earlier in the interview so it's the seeing the opportunity and then seeing movement towards i guess that you know really keeps me motivated to keep doing what i do and the wonderful people whom i work with along the way whether they be patients or students or academic colleagues potentially a segue that wasn't intended from your response there ben but with health professionals obviously our focus is on individual prescriptions and we treat each person hopefully as an individual that presents to us and tailor uh, management according to what they present with. What proportion of care in our community and whether that be provided by healthcare systems, by individual health professionals, should be focused towards individual care as distinct from policy change to lead to uh, improved community health, uh, behaviors in schools, um, changes in education, what, you know, how much of our attention should be being targeted towards things that happen at a, a macro scale rather than down on the micro individual patient? <laughs> That's a really tough question. I think uh, I would love it if each community clinician was resourced so that 20% of their time was focused on doing work to improve the health of their community rather than doing work to support individuals who are in health need. But my caveat in saying that is I don't know of a community clinician who could meet the health need in their population in 80% of the time they currently have available because they couldn't do it in 150% of the time they have available. So if the health system was going to realize that opportunity of improving community health and the long-term gains in terms of reducing the cost of ill health, it would need a massive bump in funding to enable that that crossover period to occur whilst those new initiatives are being developed but the existing health need that has grown over the last decades is still being supported but i think that in the same way that me having my 20 percent of my time i spend with patients in the clinic really keeps me grounded in what i'm doing and why i'm doing it I think having 20% of a clinician's time in their community would keep them grounded in what they're doing and why they're doing it and connected to that community so they much better understand the context within which their patients live and therefore how to best support them to, to be you know live their best lives within that context. Uh, well said, and hopefully something like that can come to pass in, in our lifetime, Ben. But uh, obviously... 
while while we continue to pontificate, we're probably using up some of that 20% that we'd otherwise be out in the community. In closing, Ben, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to impart for people living with osteoarthritis? The key thing is that you can do something to influence your health and the health of your joint. What that is, is different for different people, but don't accept someone telling you that it just is what it is. Yeah, that's a great way to close because I think un unfortunately at this point in time, many people's uh, beliefs that stem from some of the, the misconceptions that are spread through healthcare professionals in particular lead to a passive approach to the management of their disease. And I think there's a lot of things that could be improved by a more proactive, empowering approach. Ben, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us, sharing your insights and knowledge uh, that you've made a massive contribution to for osteoarthritis. And hopefully our audience will have gained uh, immensely from uh, your sharing that with us today. Well, thanks very much, David. I really enjoyed the conversation. So I hope you found that discussion today helpful, both in terms of potentially reframing unhelpful beliefs that you might currently have about osteoarthritis and hopefully doing so in a way that's empowering towards you taking more active control over this disease, osteoarthritis. It's not a one-way street. It's not one of continued decline. And for the vast majority of you who are out there, if you empower yourself with appropriate beliefs and knowledge, you can make a massive difference to the course of your disease. These are simple concepts uh, that oftentimes take a while to grapple with. Uh, but as long as you do attain some helpful beliefs, follow those with purposeful activity to help yourself and the disease that you're trying to manage, it will lead to better outcomes longer term. So we'll include a lot of the links that Ben shared with us today in the show notes. Again, really hoping that the content that you're finding in the podcast is helpful for you living with osteoarthritis. Thank you again so much for your continued support. And we look forward to talking to you again relatively soon. But between now and then, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.